Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing on in the series called Disciple, which we're going through uh, Jesus' teachings through the book of Matthew and learning what it means to really follow him. And as we've been doing in each section, we kind of have a little mini-series within the broader series. And last week, this week, and next week, we're talking about prayer. And uh, if you're here last week, we talked about, in the first part of Matthew uh, chapter 6, about the motivation behind prayer and, and the change that happens when we understand who we're praying to. And then today, we're going to talk about verse 9 through verse 15, where Jesus gives something to you and I about how we should pray. Now, I want you to understand, when we look at this passage, uh, I've been around the church for most of my life, um, and I've been a pastor for a lot of years. And so, one of the things that I've, especially as we walk through this series, that I've forced myself to do, I've actually taught through the Sermon on the Mount before. I have notes, I can go back years ago, that I taught, and I could pull out. But as we're going through these teachings, I have intentionally not gone back to just pull out of the file what I've had in the past. And the reason I've done that is because I know that there's a tendency for us to look at a passage that's familiar to us and just assume that we always understand what's there and what God is saying to us. doesn't mean that God somehow changes what he's saying. But for me, one of the things that's exciting about this series is not just what happens in the next 30 or 40 minutes. What's exciting for me is that I sit down and I open the scriptures and I don't go back to my notes. About 99% of what we're looking at, I haven't gone back to. Every once in a while, I'll go back and just reference some research that I did or things like that. But looking at a passage and saying, okay, God, what are you saying? I I don't get before the Lord and say, God, what are you saying to New Hope? I say, what are you saying to me? What are you saying about my life? What do I need to learn about prayer that maybe I've missed or I've forgotten that I need to recapture in my life? And that's why when I get to Sunday morning, this is exciting for me. But what's more exciting is what happened during the week beforehand, because I want to encounter this for me, not just for us. And I hope when you open the scriptures, that's the same passion that you feel. What is Jesus saying to you today about the concept of prayer, about the concept of communication with the God of the universe? And what you and I are going to see when we look at verse 9 in just a moment is something that you and I would wish that if Jesus was in human flesh right now and he walked into this room, I'm sure that each one of us would have a long list of things that we would ask him about how we're supposed to do things. A lot of times we get down the what, but we don't know how. And if Jesus walked in the room, you might say, okay, how am I supposed to pray? I, I love to understand the concept of it, but how in the world am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to give sacrificially when I look at my bank account? How am I supposed to love my enemies? How am I supposed to do all these things? That's why I love this passage in verse 9. It starts out by Jesus telling us how to do what we struggle doing. I love YouTube for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love YouTube is because people have taken the time to document in video how to do things. Anybody access YouTube to figure out how to do something you don't know how to do? We all do it. I've done tons of, tons of home repairs, having no clue what I was doing, but I went on YouTube and figured it out from what somebody else had done. A number of years ago, our igniter on our dryer went out, and I knew when I called a repair company, they were going to charge me $100 to come out and say hi to me. And I said, I can do it for cheaper than that. So I ordered the part for like 35 bucks online or whatever it was, and it came, and I went on YouTube, and I said, how do you install an igniter on a dryer? And sure enough, somebody had a video. I watched the video, and I figured out how to do it. And then another time, we had a, a power lock, door lock on one of our cars go out, and I took it to the mechanic, and he said he was going to charge me $400 to replace it and install it. I said, I can do it for cheaper. So I went on YouTube, and I ordered the part. It was about 50 bucks, and sure enough, somebody for a 2001 Toyota Camry had documented in video how they did that. So I had my computer, and I replaced the part, and it cost me 50 bucks. I love to know how to do things. 
Sometimes that's the greatest struggle for us. Our desire might be there and our passion might be there, but we don't have an idea of how we're supposed to do this. Today, Jesus gives us that when it comes to prayer and communicating with God. So if you have your Bibles, let me go ahead and read. I'll read verse 9 through verse 15, and then we'll talk about what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So let me just ask you a question. How many have heard that passage of Scripture before? How many have prayed that prayer before? You don't even have to go to church to know that prayer. We've referred that as the, to that as the Lord's Prayer, or some refer to it as the Disciples' Prayer, but it's the prayer that Jesus gives us to understand the how-to part of prayer, how to communicate with the God of the universe. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to make sure that there's some things that we understand about what, what we're looking at and what it isn't. Because sometimes we kind of lock into this and we miss, I think, really the, the amazing depth of what Jesus is saying to us. When you and I look at the Lord's Prayer or this passage, this is not a simple prayer to recite. And what I mean by that is so many times people take this and they think that Jesus said, this is what you should pray. He did not say this is what you should pray. He said, this is how you should pray. There's a difference. And what we do is we adopt the Lord's Prayer and that becomes the only thing that defines our prayer life. I can repeat back the Lord's Prayer. Well, what have you and I accomplished? We accomplished what Jesus talked about last week. He talked about the hypocrites and the pagans. They did that too. They could stand in public street corners and they could, they could repeat prayers and they could make people think that they were impressive. But they were not connecting with God because it wasn't real. Another thing that what we're seeing today in, in this prayer it isn't is that it's not a formula to follow. And what I mean by that is some people have taken this down and they've dissected it and so that it becomes the formula by which you and I plug our prayer life into and therefore it somehow becomes a contract with God that if I pray this way, then God is obligated to answer my prayer. That is not relationship. That's religion. And that simply means if that's true, then all you and I have to do is do the right things all the time and God will give us everything we want. Does that work? No. First of all, we can't do the right thing all the time. Secondly, God is about relationship, not a contract. And so it's not some kind of formula. It's like, oh, I found the secret formula to unlocking all of what heaven is going to give me and all of what God wants to do in my life. If I just pray exactly like this, it's also not the magic mantra that it has become in our culture. Like I said, most people who don't even walk, to, walk into a church probably have maybe never even opened the Bible. If you start into the Lord's Prayer, they can finish it. Because we see in stories and we see in television and movies, it's like in, you know, in that moment of crisis, people start praying the Lord's Prayer. The plane's going down and everybody gathers around and they hold hands and they're praying the Lord's Prayer as though somehow in the last moment of their life, this magic mantra of words will somehow save their souls. It's none of those. It's something far deeper. It is a pattern of prayer that Jesus gives to you and I that if we understand the phrases that he uses, then we understand how we effectively communicate with the God of the universe. Because God is not looking for the perfect prayer. He's looking for a heart that desires to connect with him. And this is the, the means that Jesus gives to you and I today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to walk through the passage. So look at verse 9. The first thing that helps us effectively communicate with God is that we have to understand it's about relationship. Now, the first couple points reflect back to what we talked about last week 
understanding who we're talking to in prayer, understanding the God of the universe. So Jesus starts out and he says, our father in heaven. Very important. So understand when, when Matthew wrote these words, he wrote in Greek, but when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke them in Aramaic. Anybody seen the passion of the Christ? Okay. That movie's in Aramaic. That's why it's so difficult to understand. That's why there has to be subtitles. And the reason that was done is to try to make it more accurate to the language that Jesus spoke. And when Jesus said, our father, what he would have used was the Aramaic word for father, which is a term that you guys have, you and I have heard, and it's the term Abba, and it means daddy. So what Jesus is saying when he opens up this prayer is to be reminded that you are praying in the context of relationship with your dad. That is the opening of this prayer. That's how you and I acknowledge who God is. God has given himself an identity. He's given himself a name, and that is Father. And because of that, you and I have to understand that's the way he relates to us. And it's so important because sometimes, again, what is God to us? He's some distant, indifferent being that's so far away that he has no idea what's going on in my life. And that he doesn't really care about what happens on a daily basis. When Jesus says, Our Father, what he's saying is, Abba, Father, Daddy, who cares deeply about his kids. That's the first place that we start. And understanding, that's why Jesus multiple times talked about having faith like a child, letting the children approach him. Why? Because kids get it and adults miss it. We complicate it. The simplicity of being able to call someone your dad. It's whole different meaning than father. Father is distant and sometimes cold and maybe painful. But when you have the ability to actually refer to somebody as dad, That's an endearing term, a deep connection that you have with that person, a trust that you have with that person. When Courtney and Jordan were growing up, they they had this concept in their mind that as they grow older, it started to wane a little bit because they got a whole lot smarter in the process. But when they were really young, they were convinced that dad could fix anything. Anybody remember that stage with your kids? And so no matter what would happen, and things would happen around the house, and I would fix them, and so they would see something broken, and then they would see it would be fixed, and they would say, Dad could fix it. Dad could fix a dryer because he went on YouTube, or he could fix a car because he went on YouTube. So yeah, the secret was YouTube, not Dad's wisdom, right? But they had this idea that Dad could fix things that were broken. They had this deep trust. And I, I can't remember exactly what it was that broke, but one time it was either a dish or a cup or something that hit the floor in our kitchen and just shattered into a million pieces. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, that's a mess. You're going to have to clean that up. I can't salvage that one. And at the same time, Courtney saw all, the, all of what transpired, and she makes this comment to Kim. She looks at the million pieces scattered everywhere, and she goes, oh, Dad can fix it. No pressure. You know, Dad can fix it. But in her mind, the, the, the simplicity of a child to understand that Dad can take care of this mess. You see, the, the, the reality is we all know that our earthly dads or earthly fathers will always sh- fall short of perfection. But our heavenly father will never fall short of perfection. Because he is the ultimate dad. He is the ultimate father. Therefore, he understands and cares deeply about what happens. So Jesus starts off with this whole concept. It is a relational conversation that you're having. I said it last week. We can't miss this. Otherwise, we become robots. And we don't think about what we're saying. And we don't think that God cares. God cares deeply about what we go through, and deeply about a conversation that he wants to have with us. Which leads to the second thing, because Jesus on one side says, okay, he's accessible, he's daddy, he's father. But then look at the next phrase in verse 9. Effective communication with God is also about perspective. 
Then Jesus goes on and says, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means perfect, holy, set apart, other. It's, it's as though in the same sentence, Jesus is saying the Father's totally accessible. He's your dad. He's relationally connected. Yet at the same time, he's completely beyond and above your existence, this creation, time and space. It's this tension that Jesus creates for us to understand he's accessible, yet he's far above. And why is that so important? Because sometimes you and I have a tendency to define our prayer, and the context of prayer is the list of things that we bring to God and hoping somehow something will change in our lives, but not realizing who we're talking to. We have lost sight of the person we're talking to. Why? Because the list has become so long and the items on the list so big that we forget who we're praying to. We forget who he is. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't have the same rhythms that we have in our life. He's different than us. And so understanding that, you and I have to be able to realize who we're praying to. And when we do that, it changes our view of ourselves and it changes our view of who God is. Sometimes you and I just need to be reminded how big God is. Sometimes the only way that we're reminded how big God is is to be reminded how small we are. The result of that is humility. In fact, I want to play just a short clip for you about how big the universe is in comparison to how small we are on this little dot called Earth. It gives you and I a whole appreciation of how God is bigger and above his own creation of the universe, but looking in comparison how big he is to how small we are. So let's take a look at this together. Perspective. We're puny. Seriously. That little dot, this little dot that we live on called Earth, compared to even the largest known star, compared to our galaxy, compared to the billions of galaxies, compared to the universe. And God is above all that. He is our Father. He is our Daddy. But He is above all of that. He is hallowed. He is separate. He is amazingly holy and perfect. We get to live in that tension in a conversation with a God who's so great, yet a God who's so accessible to you and I. See, when you and I have that shift in perspective, what happens is this thing called humility. It understands the place that it has compared to the creator of all things. And one of the things that I've seen in people who I could point to and say in my life, they get the concept of prayer. They are consistently in prayer. Is that what always accompanies that is a sense of humility. I've watched that in my dad's life. I've talked about my dad a lot, but my dad is committed to prayer, and I can tell he's an ongoing dialogue and connection with God all the time. And because of that, he walks with a sense of humility in his life. He understands who God is, and he understands who he is. And because of that, he has an amazing prayer life. He has an amazing connection with God. So you and I have to remember it's about the relationship, but also it's about the perspective that we have to have. Then the third thing, Look at verse 10. Effective communication with God also is about God's kingdom and not mine. Just to warn you, these don't get any easier. They get more difficult as we go through. So Jesus says in verse 10, he says, How should we pray? We should pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are probably, that's probably one of the most difficult phrases for you and I to truly embrace. To truly desire God's kingdom and God's will. Not our kingdom and our will. Sometimes we get those two confused and we think that we really want God's kingdom and God's will, but really we want our own. We want to build our own. And many times you and I have to take a step back and really question our motivation and what's going on underneath the surface. 
And I've shared about this before, but one of the things that always seems to be asked in Christian circles, especially when you're dealing with someone who's coming into a new season of life, or maybe somebody younger, maybe you're in transition, is that's the, que- the question we always ask is, what's God's will for my life? And if you and I would be honest, what we're really asking is we're not asking what, God, what, what we should be doing for God, we're asking what God can do for us. Because we have an agenda We have a desired outcome of our life. We have a will for our life. And we want somehow God to put his stamp of approval on it so that we can live out our life and God will just bless it. See, because it's what? It's really God's will for my life. There's a bigger and better question than that. And that is the question, not what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for the world? See, if you and I start with us, we'll never get to the world. But if we start with the world, we will understand in God's kingdom and his will, we, are under, we will understand where we fit. See, how many times you and I ask God to fit into our plans? We do. We don't even give him a second thought and we get into something and we ask him to bless our plans. We ask him to do something on our behalf, never bothering to stop and think, is this what God really wants done? Or is this what I want God to do for me? If, if we took a poll right now, most of us in this room would say, yeah, I, I really, I want God's will to be done in my life. And when we say that, if we're honest, we don't even know what we're saying. We don't even understand. Because when we say that, when we say God's will, we already have an idea of what we think or what we want, but we haven't come to grips with maybe what God wants to do with our life. See, there are two prayers that are the most dangerous prayers that you can pray. One is what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6. When he says, your will be done, your kingdom come. So it's about God's agenda. And also, anybody remember Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out to the Father and he asks if there's any other way that this can be accomplished, that what he was about to go and do. Any other way, which means any other way without pain, suffering, death, any other way. And you remember Jesus' prayer to the Father. Remember what he ends up saying. Not my will, but your will be done. Now just think for a moment, what was Jesus saying? What was God's will for his son? Anybody want to guess what that was? That he would live happily ever after and never have any problems again. What was God's will? Isolation, torture, abandonment, ridicule, death. How many want to pray for God's will today? Let's just be honest. Well, wait, wait, that's, that's, that's just for Jesus. That was God's, the Father's will for Jesus. Now, am I saying that God's will for all humanity is pain, suffering, loss? No, but that's a part of it. See, because what Jesus was about was not his will or his agenda, but he was about the Father's will and the Father's agenda. Are you and I willing to really pray this prayer? Are we willing to say, your kingdom come, your will be done, even if it means I don't get what I want? Even if it means that I have to endure some pain and suffering in this life? See, because when we say God's will, we mean God bless everything so I never experience pain, that life is easy, that I get everything I really want, and then someday I die in my sleep and go to be with you so I never experience pain. Wouldn't we want that to be the will for our life? It's not about us. And if God can use the pain and suffering in our life to bring glory to him and ultimately use that to reconcile people back to him through Jesus, then we have to be willing to say, okay, God, your will be done in our lives. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he's wanting to say. Can we, can we embrace that? Are we willing to live the life that Jesus lived and being willing to die for the sake of glorifying God and bringing people to Jesus? 
That's the question that's difficult. That's why this prayer is not easy. That's why what Jesus is saying to us is a challenge to us. Are we going to submit ourselves to God's will, God's plan, God's kingdom? And then the fourth thing, jump to verse 11. Again, not any easier. Effective communication with God also means it's about God's provision for our physical needs. We're like, all right, I get what I want. Nope. Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. It doesn't say give us today our steak and lobster. It says our daily bread, which is the staple of life. So what Jesus is saying is the context of our prayer, how you pray is that you ask each day to God, for God to supply what you need. Not what you want. This is a big one. And the reason why is the word daily. We would prefer weekly, monthly, or annually. That would work better for us. Because we're planners. And we worry. And we're concerned about tomorrow. And we're so concerned about tomorrow that we forget about today. That's why Jesus says, what? Your daily bread. This isn't some new concept that Jesus came up with when he was sharing this 2,000 years ago. This is something that was going on in God's people for years and years and years. Go back to Exodus 16. God leads Israel out of Egypt, and now they're in the desert. And now they don't have food. They don't have what they had in Egypt. So what does God have to do? He has to supply for their daily bread. So he provides manna, which literally means, what is it? Manna was some kind of bread substance that obviously, because God gave it to them, it was like the perfect food, the perfect balance of whatever they needed, they would have each day. And he told them, it will be there for you. When you wake up in the morning, you will pick it up and only collect enough for today. And what did they do? No, what about tomorrow? So when they would see man on the ground, they would all start collecting it and they would put a little away for tomorrow because who knows, maybe God won't show up tomorrow. He showed up today, so we better take advantage of it now. So they stockpiled it. And then when they woke up the next morning, everything that they had saved for themselves had rotted because God was saying, listen, I told you I will take care of your daily needs, not your wants. How many times in our lives are we so concerned about providing for ourselves tomorrow that we forgot that God is giving us resource for today? See, the reason God gives us resource for today is because if we are about what he's doing, then simply what he's giving us is fuel for his purpose. And when the fuel gets in the way and that becomes our focus, then we lose sight. See, we are guilty, especially in our culture. We are guilty of planning so much for tomorrow that we forget about today. I mean, how many of us have freaked out in this room because we've been told you don't have enough for retirement? Let's just be honest. How many of you are freaked out about retirement? Raise your hand if you're human and if you're over the age of 18. If you're under 18, you're like, ah, my mom and dad will take care of it, right? No, we have. And then you see the stock market start to go down. And, and some you know, consultant tells you this. You're like, oh, no, the sky is falling. Does that have anything to do with today? No, it's tomorrow. In our culture, we thrive on this. We have to make sure that we have enough because if we don't have enough, then God forbid our lives will fall apart. That's why I drive around Simi Valley. Tell me how you can count. How many public storage units do we need? Honestly. Seriously, because we buy big houses and condos and apartments and we don't have enough room, so we have to pay somebody to hold on to our junk for us. That's what it is. Now, I know there's sometimes temporary need and businesses use it. I get that, okay? But most storage units are just stuff that we should get rid of. But boy, what if I get rid of that? I might need it someday. 
And what does it do? It costs you money, it costs you concern and anxiety, and all the while becomes a distraction because you and I can't focus on today because we're too worried about tomorrow. There's a term for that. It's called hoarding. Seriously, there's TV shows about it. And I understand, hear me, I know there are psychological challenges for some people who really, they seriously can't help themselves, and they do need help. But that's a small percentage of the population. But the rest of us, honestly, I'm just going to be really honest, hoarding is a sin. Because you and I are weighing ourselves down and not focusing on what God's, because we're so concerned. If he supplies for today, he will supply for tomorrow. Daily bread. If we get this concept, our lives would be so much better. That all God is going to give me what I need for today. We trust him with that. Then leads to the next thing. Go ahead and look at verse 12. Because not only is effective communication with God about God's provision for our physical need, but it's also about God's provision for our spiritual needs. So Jesus goes on in verse 12 and he says, Forgive us our debts. So what he's saying is, you have to acknowledge that you have debts. Forgive us the debts of sin that we carry in our lives. For our points of failure, for where we've fallen short, we have to be willing to own those and confess those and turn from those things in order to follow him. The wonderful thing is, is he's made provision not only for our physical needs, but for our spiritual needs by his death on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, he pays for our sin. He forgives the debt that we have. But we have to be willing to face that debt. You know, if people tell me, well, if Jesus died on the cross, then I'm forgiven. Yes, you are, but... Forgiveness comes with a price. It comes with Jesus' life, which means you have to be acknowledging that you have failed. That that's why the Bible talks about confessing our sin and turning from our sin and acknowledging that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the debt of sin that I have in my life. That's coming to grips with our failure in our life. And we have to be willing to do that. And Jesus makes provision for that. Now listen, this is one of the things that's a challenge for us. You and I have a tendency to live in denial. And that is that we don't really want to know the true reality of who we are and what's going on in our life. So, perfect example. A lot of times when we get into debt, we don't want to know how much debt we're in. I've had so many people who say, yeah, I'm in lots of debt. How much debt? I have no idea. And the reason why is I don't really want to know. It's just a lot. And so we never take a step back and say, let me, look at, let me take a financial inventory of my life. Because we, we have this tendency to think, oh, somehow it'll just get resolved in the future. I'll just keep swiping today and somehow the money will come in tomorrow. You know, it's crazy with credit cards. Just a little side note, credit cards, careful. If you can't control your spending, get rid of your credit cards. Kim and I have a couple of credit cards. I'll tell you why. We've never once paid ever, ever interest or a annual fee for credit cards. Because we know how to control them. And we have robbed credit card companies blind and taking points. But we will not give anything to them. But you know what's funny is when we get the bill at the end of the month and you look at the bottom of it, you know what it says? It always says, here's the minimum payment. And Kim was looking at it the other day and it says, here's pay the minimum payment. And you map it out. If you pay the minimum payment every month, you can pay this debt off in 29 years. Really? Let's pay it off in one day. If we don't spend for the future and think, oh, I'm just going to somehow pay for it tomorrow. The same thing is true. For the spiritual reality of our lives. You and I are so afraid of what we'll see if we take a spiritual inventory that we don't. But what David prayed in the Psalms when he said, search me, God, know me. That's scary. 
Really? You mean pull back the layers that I'm trying to hide my sin in and really expose what's there? Yes, we have to do that ongoingly because you and I have a tendency to live in denial and we don't know what's there until we let God pull it back and say, let me show you what's there. Not so that he can bring guilt and shame and condemnation. No, he brings conviction that brings forgiveness and moves us forward. But there has to be a rhythm in our life in the process of prayer where you and I come before the Lord and we may know the faults in our life. We may know the sins and we confess those. But we also may say, God, I'm not aware of things that maybe I'm doing or maybe I've done that I need to know about so that I can experience your forgiveness and I can move forward. So that you and I are right before the Lord, which leads to the next thing in verse 12. And that is not only do we get forgiveness for our debt, but then it goes on and says, also as we have forgiven our debtors. Effective communication means it's about maintaining right relationships. Man, here we go again. Jesus always goes there, doesn't he? If you've been here in the last year and we keep going through Jesus, how many times have we talked about right relationships with each other? About every other week. Because that's where Jesus goes because... We can't have a right relationship with God without having a right relationship with each other. It is impossible. And that's why Jesus mentions this, is that ultimately, if we want to experience and live in the forgiveness of God, we have to also allow others to experience forgiveness on our behalf, to extend that to other people. Let me read verse 14 and 15. I like to keep verse 14 and 15 in with what we call the Lord's Prayer, because it's a part of this. It's referring to verse 12. Because Jesus goes on, he says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. What do you think Jesus is really saying there? That maybe if you choose not to forgive somebody, he's not going to forgive you? Do you think maybe he might be saying what he's saying? Honestly, let's just be honest. Because sometimes you read that and say, Well, what is he really saying? He wouldn't really be saying that he's going to withhold his forgiveness from me simply because I won't let something go against somebody else. That's exactly what he's saying. Sometimes we like to spiritualize scripture. It is straightforward. And for some of us, we have to come to grips with this. You may have been holding a grudge for the last 20 years thinking all the while that God's extending you forgiveness. And he hasn't been because you're still upset and hurt and frustrated and offended at somebody else and you haven't extended them forgiveness. That's scary. You and I have to understand forgiveness is like a river that flows. And you and I were never meant to be reservoirs. But somehow in our minds we have this idea that we are reservoirs of God's forgiveness. Just keep bringing it in, God. Just let my reservoir full be full of all your forgiveness. That's not the way it's supposed to work. You and I are a river that God flows through his forgiveness through us to other people. And the moment that we put a dam in and we cap it is the moment that God's forgiveness stops being extended to us. Because how fair is it for God to forgive us and us not to forgive others? That's not right. That's hard, but that's not right. And what God wants us to understand is that there's this flow that's coming to us. And it's what's beautiful. This is what's crazy. The God of the universe chooses to give us forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross so that we can extend that forgiveness to everybody around us. Isn't that crazy? God lets us be a part of this continuum of forgiveness to people. He invites us to be a part of that. But what do we do is we stop up the flow and we stop forgiving. It's like anybody had a hose that just keeps kinking? Anybody ever had that experience? And you're like, you run your hose all the way across your front yard or your backyard. And you're trying to water some area that's far away. And you get there and you hold the hose out and it just drips. And you look back and like all the way, like almost next to where the faucet comes out of the wall is where the kink is. And then if you're like me and then you're like, you start swinging the hose like that. 
and hoping, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to release, and then it never does. So what do you have to do? You have to put the hose down. You have to walk all the way back. You have to bend down. You have to straighten the kink, and then the water starts to flow. See, when it comes to forgiveness, a lot of times you and I don't want to walk back there. We don't want to go back to that kink. We, we just want to, it'll resolve on its own. If I pull hard enough, I just keep moving forward. It'll all be okay, not realizing that God is calling us to go back to places where we have not extended forgiveness and begin to do that. Because that's what unkinks the flow of forgiveness in our life. That God wants to continue, God wants to extend his forgiveness to us. Only if we're really willing to extend it to other people. I, I, I know I probably am asking for something that I really shouldn't experience, but I've, I've often thought, God, what would it be like if for just a moment you could show me in my lifetime the full impact of my sin? The full mountain of sin that I've created in this world, the things that I've done wrong, how ugly it is, how horrible it is. Just for a moment, I know if I would be able to see that, I would have no problem forgiving other people. I wouldn't. Because I would look at the mountain of sin that God has forgiven me and think, I can let go of this one. I can forgive this one. I don't even know what I'm asking. That might be overwhelming too much to ask, but I know one thing for sure. If I just get a little glimpse of it, I know, God, that I have to extend forgiveness to other people. That's what Jesus tells us, that to be in right relationship. And then, finally, in verse 13, it's also effective communication with God is about a spiritual reality. And Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus is referring to the enemy of our souls, Satan. Now, some translations might say, deliver us from evil. But NIV and what I've, it says evil one, I believe it's referring to the enemy. But what Jesus is not saying is every temptation and every sin, every point of failure in your life can be blamed on the devil. We wish it was that easy. It's not. But what he's praying is, what we should be praying for is that we live in a world where we define things by what we can see and feel and touch and hear, not what we can't see. And what Jesus is saying is you live in a realm but you don't understand fully of all of what's going on. And behind the scenes, there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual battle that's going on that you have to be willing to acknowledge is there and know what's going on. Otherwise, you'll miss it. Because you and I need the protection of God over us, which the cross provides by the blood of Jesus, that the enemy can't touch our souls. He can harass us, but he can't touch our souls. He can confuse us, but he can't touch our eternity. That belongs to Jesus. And if you and I will understand, though, that reality, that the enemy is at work. Now, there's not a demon behind every bush, and you and I don't get a, a free kind of scapegoat clause. It really is the enemy's fault. If the enemy wasn't there, I would have been fine. No, we have our own sin nature that does well enough on its own. How many know that's true? But there's an enemy of our souls that's working behind the scenes to try to trip us up, to try to keep us from what God wants to do in our lives and wants to do through us. Now, some people would say, well, how do you, how do you deal with the enemy then? Scripture's pretty, pretty clear on how you and I deal with the enemy. Some would say, well, you know what? We need to go after the enemy. We need, to, we need to make sure that we engage him and encounter him and go after and take back the land and all these kind of phrases we use it. And, and nowhere in Scripture are we supposed to go after the enemy and go on the offensive towards him. We're not. You know who does that? God does that. In fact, the battle has already been, the war has already been won. It happened on the cross. And the enemy is just simply in the process of dying. And you and I need to understand the way that you and I deal with the enemy is don't worry so much about the enemy. Focus more on God. James 4, 7. So it could be up on the screen. This is the way you and I deal with the enemy of our souls. 
It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't mean that you and I go after the devil. See, you and I have to understand the process of dealing with the enemy of our souls is submitting ourselves to God. Because if you and I submit ourselves to God and we focus on him and we choose to follow Jesus in our life, then you and I don't have to worry about what the enemy is trying to do because we're going to be listening to God's voice and not his. But sometimes we get that backwards in our life and we, we, we don't realize that the reason that we're having trouble with the enemy is because we haven't submitted ourselves to God. We haven't surrendered to him. That's why the enemy is working in our lives. And sometimes we don't even know when he's working in our lives. Because the majority of us don't walk up to our front door of our spiritual life and say, okay, enemy, come on in. We don't do that. But you know what we do? We do is in the back door, is, it's unlocked. And he keeps coming in the back door in our lives and trying to influence us, and we don't even realize it's going on. You know, it's interesting in what Jesus has written and what we've been going through in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 6 is that there's a lot of subtle ways that the enemy begins to influence us that eventually, when it really comes to fruition and it comes to full growth, it's more than we ever thought it was going to be in a bad way. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about, Jesus talked about murder. And he talked about, he backed up from the act of murder and said, hey, there's a motivation for murder and it's anger and hatred. Remember that? Where does the enemy work? In the act of murder? No. Way before that. In the motivation for it. Subtly, when you have and I have an issue with somebody else, we become angry, and we don't deal with that anger in our lives. And it just kind of hangs on, and before you and I know it, it takes root in us, and eventually you want to act out on that anger. And then Jesus also talked about the concept of adultery and divorce and how that looks in our lives. And, but he took it back to, and that's the ultimate outcome of where you end up, but where you start is in this thing called lust. That's where the enemy works. That's where the temptation comes. That's where the small seed is planted that begins to grow. And then before you know it, you do things that you never thought you would do. Or maybe, maybe it's in the area of our commitments. Remember we just talked about being yes be yes, no be no, and everything else comes from what? The evil one. Compromise. He slips in and he says, ah, nah. Yeah, you said yes, but you don't really have to do that. You said no, but you can really give in to that. And we listen to the subtle temptations and then we talked about the concept of revenge. Jesus talked about that. And revenge is really when we're offended with somebody and we take it on ourselves to go after them and we don't deal with that offense. And eventually the enemy comes along and he causes great division in our lives with other people. All those are subtle ways that the enemy works that you and I have to be aware of. Now just, I, I shared this story before, but just think about this. From, this is the way the enemy works. He doesn't show up, and it's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, we expect, like, the enemy to be this, you know, great and powerful Oz that, you know, breathes fire and smoke and has his booming voice. That's not the way the enemy works. He's the little man behind the curtain. He's very subtle. And, it's, and he gets you and I to go and bite on something, and then he can simply walk away and just let us self-destruct. I've shared my, my dog growing up. Her name was Bicky. She's a little German schnauzer, and she, she was a pretty smart dog. And the reason I knew that is that we had two dogs that lived right behind us. We had a tall fence in our backyard. We had ivy growing over the top of it. It was probably like 12 feet high, so you couldn't see the dogs, but you could hear them. And so she would go to the back, our back property line, and right along that fence, and she would start barking. And after about five or ten seconds, you'd start hearing these other two dogs on the other side of the fence. They would start barking back at her. And then she would start running up and down the fence line. She would bark, and they would start barking. And then probably three or four minutes would go by, and she would stop barking. And she would sit there for a minute. But the dogs on the other side of the fence would keep barking. 
And then she would walk away and go to the far end of, the, of our backyard. We watched this happen. And the two dogs on the other side of the fence were like tearing at each other. You could hear them growling and barking. And you could see some dust flying and like all this crazy stuff. And she's on the other side of the yard. She doesn't even care what's going on anymore. And they're going to kill each other on the other side of the fence. Now, I never saw this, but I'm pretty sure somewhere in her personality, she was laughing. She had to be laughing. <laughs> These two stupid dogs are now trying to kill each other. And I think the enemy works the same way in our lives. He comes along and he gets us to bite on something. He gets us, especially in the area of offense, to get offended with each other. And then he just walks away. And he lets us go after each other. The enemy doesn't destroy the church, by the way, because Jesus said that the gates of hell cannot stand against the church. Correct? The enemy doesn't destroy the church. Who destroys the church? We do. And how does it get destroyed faster? When we turn on each other when we don't deal with offenses, we don't realize that the enemy started a ball rolling that we can stop by simply extending forgiveness to other people. See, you and I have to understand this thing called prayer, really, and this is what I want to close with. See, we think, okay, give me the mechanism that I can present my list to God and I'll get what I want. That's not what prayer is. See, prayer is a process that is more about God changing us than us changing God's mind. You need to understand The process of prayer changes us because it reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of the fact that he takes care of our needs. It reminds us of a spiritual reality. The more we pray, the more we're able to engage in something that we have a tendency to forget. God is about changing and transforming us. And the process of prayer does that. Would you go ahead and close your eyes? I'm going to pray in just a moment. The worship team will join us for one last song. But in your mind right now, as you, with your eyes closed, I just want you to focus on this incredible gift that God has given you and I. It's this thing called prayer. And I want you to just capture what it is. God loves us so much that not only did he send his son to die on the cross for our forgiveness, and he rose from the dead to have victory over death so that we can live with God forever. That is incredible. But in this world... The God of the universe, who has always been and will always be, has said to humanity, to those who choose to follow Jesus, I invite you into a conversation. That's amazing. God wants to talk to you. God wants to connect with you. God wants to work in your life. And the way that he, one of the ways he does that is through this thing called prayer. He wants to talk to you. He wants to communicate with you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the words that you share. Lord, each time we open the teachings from Matthew, we learn something more about who you are, about who we are, about how we can follow you. And Lord, thank you for giving us the how-to when it comes to prayer. And Lord, I ask that today we would look at prayer differently. Lord, I don't know where we are in our journey, each one of us. Maybe some of us have known you for 67 years. Maybe some of us don't even really know you yet. But Lord, each one of us comes with either our preconceived ideas about prayer or maybe our struggles with prayer. But I ask today, since we've been able to look at your words from scriptures to know what you said about prayer, that today our minds and our hearts would be changed about how we can connect and communicate with you because ultimately you are drawing us in to a conversation in relationship. And Lord, we know that that conversation will always draw us beyond where we're at, will always require more than we think that we can give. 
will always convict us and challenge us beyond where we're at. But Lord Jesus, we know that the process of prayer through what you want to do will change us. So Lord Jesus, change us. Help us to be people who pray who pray by on our own, who pray in groups of people, who pray for the world, who seek you and listen to you and spend time away from the distractions of life to connect with you so that we really are people who can pray with confidence, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that Lord Jesus, our lives would be your will accomplished for your world, for the people that you love. We thank you, Jesus, for your work in us, in your name. Amen.